couple things. Number one, for less severe depressions, and we're probably talking, uh, we're talking all major depression. That's the uh, group I've mostly studied. For less severe depressions, anything works better than nothing. Okay, good. And that it's only when you get up more severe depressions that you need the extra specific, the active medication in the pill or the uh, the cognitive behavioral or the interpersonal or the uh, behavioral kinds of interventions that go beyond uh, just the non-sort of placebo response. But depression is quite highly uh, responsive to placebo effects, and thank God that it is. What that means is, again, I think the system that they're they're working towards in uh, Great Britain is uh, virtually ideal. They'll start folks off with less intensive treatments, not pharmacological, but less intensive psychological treatments, maybe uh, stuff over the internet or uh, what was your term earlier, life coach. They'll do things along that line, and a lot of folks will respond to that very nicely. So there's no reason to go on for something heavy that's more heavy duty. If you've got a history of more severe depressions, then they might bump you right up to the second level or, or intensive uh, therapies or medications. But they you, you don't start right there, which again, in our country, unfortunately, we start with the heavier uh, duty medications. It's the same thing to use for more severe depression. We almost do by default by our general practitioners. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. So, hey, welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. I hope you enjoyed our last episode with Daniel Blum. It's weird and different talking to millennials, Daniel's 30 years younger than me, who sometimes eschew traditional career paths in favor of solopreneuring or other idiosyncratic paths. Uh, I found it fascinating, and it's certainly a different perspective on life. I'd like to remind listeners of just four things. First thing first, if you like Think Bigger, Think Better, please leave a review on iTunes. It's the most significant way you can help me help the podcast and support the show. It takes under a minute to write a short review on iTunes. And if you've done so, tell me by email, and I will send you a free book from one of our guests. Thing one and thing two, this is thing two. I'm going to double the frequency of the shows to one per week, which will mean I'll be more like a podcaster who writes a bit rather than a writer who podcasts a bit. If you'd like an email notification when a show drops, head over to paulgibbons.net and get on my mailing list. Third thing, what's coming up? We are reaching out to experts on personalized medicine, microbiome research, gluten, crypto, artificial intelligence, Mars, the boring company, and Elon Musk's Tesla. I'm still keen to get a few shows in on plastics, pollution, and climate change. And at the same time, I'm looking for great philosophers and scientists. Um, if you have a particular author, or writer, philosopher, scientist that you'd like to have on the show, do just let me have their name by email, and I will reach out to them immediately. We have a cabinet minister from New Zealand who's their cabinet minister for climate change and their deputy finance minister. And we have a former cabinet minister from the French government coming in the show later on in the fall. Let me know who you'd like on the show and what questions you'd have if I got them. Now, on with today's show. In his autobiography, John Stuart Mill, one of the 19th century most important philosophers, described depression thus. I was in a dull state of nerves unsusceptible to enjoyment or pleasurable excitement. One of those moods when what is pleasure at other times becomes insipid or indifferent. In this frame of mind, it occurred to me to put the question directly to myself. Suppose that all your objects in life, he's talking about my objects in life, suppose all your objects in life were realized. That all the changes in institutions and opinions which you are looking forward to 
could be completely affected at this very instant. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? And irrepressible self-consciousness directly answered, no. And so there you have John Stuart Mill talking about the lack of enjoyment, the state of nerves, the inability to get pleasure from things that might otherwise be pleasurable. And suppose you realize all your objects in life, your goals and dreams and plans, would you be happy? No. The depressive person will understand this very, very well that no, they certainly wouldn't be. So our podcast today talks about depression, which affects one in six Americans, 20% of women and 10% of men will have an episode during their lifetimes. An important outstanding question, which we get to in the show, is whether this may grossly understate the case, whether because of stigma, depression is really underdiagnosed. And of course, depression has claimed many lives. Sometimes it leads to suicide. And uh, we've lost Robin Williams. We've lost Anthony Bourdain. We've lost Kate Spade. And the great message from that is, first of all, it's the tip of the iceberg. We don't want to just focus on the very few people who are famous who commit suicide and who suffer from depression. There is, I believe, according to uh, statistics, 17.6 million Americans who suffer less dramatically and don't make the headlines. And so while we lose many of our greatest and leading lights to this disease, you know, that's barely just the tip of the iceberg, as I've said. So the interesting question for you is, are you depressed? How does depression differ from having the blues or some sadness associated with loss or fatigue? or organic or medical disorders such as thyroid problems or low testosterone in men. Or perhaps there's someone in your life who may look like or you may suspect is suffering depression. What symptoms would you observe in them? And if you love them, care for them, what should they do? So how do you define depression? Well, it's one of the most commonly diagnosed psychiatric disorders in the United States. It affects, as I said, 17.6 million people or nearly one in six. Depressed patients also have increased risk of other diseases, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and suicide. Within the next 20 years, it may become the second leading cause of disability worldwide and the leading cause in high-income nations where we've made such progress with heart disease and cancer, famine, and epidemiological disasters such as smallpox, cholera, typhoid and malaria. In approximately 75% of suicides, the individuals have seen a physician within the first the year prior to their death, and almost half of those within the prior month. About a third of those who completed suicide had contact with the mental health services in the prior year. So it's not always the case that people who suicide are avoiding or staying away. Sometimes they're already seeking or have sought support we have to ask ourselves the question, well, then how much, if you talk to your family doctor or you talk to a professional about it, is that sufficient? Are we doing a good enough job catching people before they tumble down the drain? So who have we got to do this? Uh, we have Steve Holland, who's a professor of psychology and human development at Vanderbilt University. Uh, for my overseas listeners, that's in Tennessee. Holland's main interest is in the etiology, that's the, the evolution, the development of and treatment of depression in adults. His work extends from the basic psychopathology of the disease to prevention and treatment. He's very interested in the relative contribution of cognitive and biological processes to depression. So to put that in, uh, in English, if you will, depression is both the disease of the narrative, the stories you tell yourself about your life, but also biological processes. So the activation of certain receptors, serotonin receptors, particularly glutamine receptors, 
dopaminergic receptors. So uh, he's interested in how those combine. And I think that's a fascinating question to, want, to ask oneself because it's obviously when you talk to someone who's depressed, they have different kinds of narratives about their life and about the world and about their relationships, but it's also treatable biochemically. And so there's an interesting interaction between story and chemistry. If you're interested in such things, well, that's one of Steve Holland's interests. Steve is also interested in the prevention of depression, preventing its initial onset and preventing recurrence with successful treatment. He also compares the efficacy of psychosocial versus pharmacological interventions. Again, I'll translate that into England drugs, into English drugs or therapy. That's rather a blunt way of putting it. In this podcast, Steve and I get into what distinguishes depression from feeling down, feeling blue, sadness, fatigue, not enjoying life, or just missing my dog. When is clinical depression? clinical designation, rather, appropriate and helpful to the treatment of the disease. The question for you listeners, perhaps, if you some person who sometimes, you know, doesn't feel as good as you think you ought, how can you diagnose yourself? Is depression a continuum? Or is it a different, completely different state of mind, a different kind of thing? Do general practitioners, your general practitioner, your family doctor, understand the condition and the disease sufficiently, or are they making systematic mistakes? Is depression an illness? Is there a depressive personality type? What kind of treatment works best? What's the role of pharmaceutical companies? Is it positive, negative, or mixed? And how about non-medical treatments, mindfulness, nutrition, and exercise? And we get into those a little bit. And then finally, the future of depression research and treatment. So that's the show. And now I want to welcome Steve. So Steve, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. Very excited to have you. Happy to be here. So tell people something about yourself, you know, off your bio and official official CV, which is either, you know, quirky or eccentric or unusual, something people wouldn't find on there. Well, yeah, uh, let me just say I'm, I'm a big fan of young adult literature, things like The Hunger Games, Twilight, etc. Big fan of The Big Bang Theory. My wife thinks I'm turning into a 13-year-old girl. So if I have a spare moment, I'll pop off to the movies and uh, watch one of the latest comic book movies. That's marvelous. That's good. There's an interesting article in the BBC today about subjective age versus objective age yeah. and how actually people's subjective age perception may be related to lots of things like yeah. well, longevity and mental health yeah. and all kinds of things. So your subjective age is about 12, as far as I can tell. I, I, I would think 13. I give myself a little more credit than that. Now, my mentor <laughs> came back in his late 90s and still going strong. And I think I look at I look at him as a model as to how you can uh, push what you do in a way that's just absolutely amazing and absolutely uh, life rewarding. Very, very good. Well, let's talk a little bit about depression. So, you know, for our average listener, Steve, what distinguishes uh, depression as a pathology? I don't even know if that's the correct word from feeling down, feeling blue, sadness, fatigue, not enjoying life. I miss my dog or I miss my grandma or whatever. When is a clinical designation appropriate or helpful in depression? Yeah, it really depends a lot on severity and how much it's interfering uh, with what you do. We use the term depression to refer to three levels of things. First is just the uh, affect, like sadness, and everybody feels sad from time to time. We also use it to refer to a syndrome, which means that not only uh, will somebody feel sad, they're probably having trouble sleeping, they'll probably uh, be less interested in doing things they typically would want to do, uh, they don't eat as much, they uh, lose interest in other people, etc. And that's anytime you get a syndrome, which is a collection of uh, signs and symptoms that go together with greater than chance frequency, then you know there's got to be something driving it. And the third level is when you talk about a, a nosologic disorder. If I were a physician, I'd talk about diseases. As a psychologist, I'd talk about disorders. And there are different things that look a lot alike, have the same syndrome, that aren't necessarily, uh, don't necessarily reflect the same causal processes. So the, what's uh, an exa- example of the latter? Well, an example of the latter would be uh, in depression, there are two, really two major kinds. Uh, there's unipolar depression. Those are folks who have the syndrome from time to time. 
and uh, tends to be episodic, self-limiting and episodic, which means most episodes go away on their own. But uh, individuals who uh, get depressed will have some higher probability of getting depressed again in the future. The uh, bipolar depression, uh, the depressed phase looks for all the world like a unipolar depression. But those are the same folks that at other times will have one or more manic or hypomanic episodes. And uh, most people don't get truly manic episodes where they get great energy, uh, self-aggrandizement. They uh, make all kinds of bad life judgments, spend a lot of money, engage in extramarital affairs. And the uh, Unipolar depression is very common. About uh, and about 20% of all women and 10% of all men are going to have a unipolar episode at some point in their life. Uh, it's not particularly genetic. Uh, heritability is only about 0.3 to 0.4. It's less heritable than political preference. Bipolar disorder is highly heritable, about 0.7 to 0.8. It's uh, next to autism. It's the uh, most heritable of the disorders that we know about. You probably have to have the genes to have a, a bipolar disorder. And you couldn't tell the depressed phase uh, from unipolar from bipolar apart. Mm. So what's this, what kind of cycles in the, in the bipolar uh, things? Are they annual or can they biweekly? I mean, it depends sort of very much on the individual. They can bounce right. all over. And again, the, the one thing that's defining for a bipolar uh, disorder is that they have to have one or more manic or hypomanic episodes. Most folks don't have uh, either. Instance there is probably about 1% to 2% of the population got hit for bipolar disorder. And gee, if you, uh, if you have bipolar disorder, but it's not so bad that it ever becomes truly manic, where you uh, almost lose contact with reality, it's uh, almost psychotic in, in severity, it's almost a bit of a blessing. I probably uh, fall in the bipolar spectrum. And uh, most of the time, I'm kind of chronically hypomanic. I'm energetic, active, uh, enthusiastic, and I get a lot of stuff done. I sleep maybe four hours a night, but it's never gone too far. The depressions were unpleasant, but uh, the two or three that I've had. But uh, for most folks, couldn't get that, I think, without having the right uh, genetic basis or the wrong genetic basis. That's funny. Uh, that's funny. I, when I was uh, writing uh, my book uh, a while ago, I, I put a, what sounds like that to a very good use. I, I, don't, I, wouldn't consider, I don't consider myself that, but you know, I was getting up at four in the morning and I was writing until 8 p.m. at night. And you know, I pounded out a book in 18 months or something yep. like that. And So do we think about things as a continuum? So mm-hmm. is it a continuum or is it a different kind of Thing, you know, continue yeah. from the sadness of fatigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great question. And, right. Great question. The best we can tell it, it's more continuum, particularly in the unipolar, than discontinuity. And if you were to take something like the Beck Inventory or another depression measure, go to a shopping mall, you get a distribution that goes from most folks are, are sitting right around uh, minimal depression out to a, uh, a tail where a smaller and smaller number of people are, have more and more uh, uh, symptoms of depression, and you wouldn't see a breaking point. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe when you get into psychotic depressions, maybe about 1% to 2% of depressions, uh, 1% to 2% of the population are going to be so depressed that they're going to uh, think that they've already died or they're going to think that uh, they're the source of all evil in the world. And that, that's pretty severe, but that's less common. It's more common in uh, bipolar disorder, although majority of folks with bipolar disorder don't uh, become fully psychotic, but it's, it's much more common in uh, bipolar than unipolar in terms of percentages. And maybe there you get a discontinuity, but uh, if you just look in terms of severity, it's, it's hard to find a break in the continuum. Right, right, right. Very good. So you mentioned something that I've, I've seen and, and used, the Bex Depression Inventory mm-hmm. or something like that. What's that and, and what's its value to people who might be curious yeah. about their own kind of yeah. mental health? Yeah. It, it's a self-report measure. And for the last probably 50 years, yeah, about 50 years, it's been the primary uh, self-report measure that people use. It's not the only one. Uh, there are others that are often also quite good as well. It's 21 items and it covers things like uh, sadness, guilt, uh, suicidal ideation, uh, uh, loss of interest, the, the kind of the classic symptoms. Now, increasingly, nowadays, people are kind of moving over to what they call the PHQ-9. I think that's Psychiatric History Questionnaire and just nine items. And basically, that's uh, 
just the nine items on nine diagnostic items from DSM for major depressive disorder. And they've turned that into a self-report scale. And the advantage of the PHQ-9 is it, it's shorter, it's simpler. It's probably not as fully discriminating, but uh, I think since uh, David Clark and Richard Laird at, uh, at IAP have, have tied their uh, services in England to uh, the PHQ-9, I think more folks are going to be using that. We've uh, even though, as I say, uh, Tim Beck was my mentor and I love the man dearly, uh, I've switched over to using PHQ-9 in my own research as well. If I wanted just to see uh, uh, where I stood out in those kinds of measures, I'd probably just uh, go to the internet, search for PHQ-9 and take that. Okay, cool. Um, that, let me ask you this. Is the Beck's president, but that's not Aaron Beck of CBT. Yes, it is. It yeah. is Aaron Beck. Yeah. And he was a mentor of yours. You, uh, for, yes. for listeners, he's the, he would, well, why don't you tell listeners who Aaron Beck was? Oh, yeah. Aaron Beck uh, actually goes by by Tim. My middle name is Timkin, I think. Uh, but Aaron Beck is a psychiatrist, trained uh, dynamically, as most psychiatrists were back in the uh, 50s before the heyday of biological psychiatry, and very good at it. But he was also a research psychiatrist. And he was, in those days, the Freudian notion was that depression was anger turned inward. You had this uh, infantile rage at your parents because they... Uh, uh, didn't do uh, what you thought you, you wanted them to do at a narcissistic level. And if you scratched a depression, you went into the uh, unconscious uh, fantasies, the dream content, et cetera, you'd find this tremendous rage at uh, uh, at your parents uh, tucked away. He started looking for it. He couldn't find it. And he looked at dream material, looked at free association. And after over about a uh, decades of research, not finding it, not finding it, not finding it, and starting to do some uh, experimental psychopathology studies where, for example, he put people depressed and not depressed into paradigms where you set it up so they either won or lost. If you have somebody who's not depressed and you uh, have them rig it so they lose uh, on a trial of something, they try harder on the next trial. If you have somebody who's depressed and you rig it so they lose, they stop trying. If they win, they try harder. And it, it totally flipped around. And what he uh, came to was the realization that when his patients were sitting in front of him saying, I'm inadequate, I'm worthless, et cetera, the reason they were sad is because they believed it. It wasn't true, but they believed it. And uh, he totally flipped around uh, our notion of what depression was on its head, started developing interventions uh, to treat it, very behavioral and very cognitive fairly straightforward and gee, almost, almost just getting people to, uh, to to run experiments to test out, was it really true what they believed about themselves? And most of the time it's not. And when they did that, they don't stay depressed. Very interesting. Well, we'll get into CBT in a little bit. And I'm very interested in talking further about that. What for the lay people, what are the sort of classifications? We've already touched on one unipolar versus bipolar. What are some of the other classifications of depressive disorder or, or depression yeah. syndrome or something like that that people might wish to understand? Sure, sure. They change a little bit over the uh, uh, years and centuries. If you wanted to, uh, uh, you could find descriptions of depression that look very much like the way we've described today on the uh, hieroglyphics in the walls of the pyramid. So it goes way, way back. But our subclassifications move around just a little bit. Right now, we talk about major depression, and that's uh, that's big, bad, very unpleasant, and uh, can often be uh, quite debilitating. There's another version which uh, people talk about. These talk about minor depression, but nobody pays too much attention to that now. But they will talk about something, uh, uh, either chronic depression or cyclothymia. And major depression is uh, all the kind of four or five, uh, the, the nine classic symptoms, enough of them to uh, warrant something that really interferes with a person's life. Cyclothymia would be a, a smaller, not quite so bad version of that, but it tends to be much longer lasting. For a, I'm sorry, a dysthymia. A dysthymia, usually you need to have somebody who's been depressed more often than not for the last two years. Usually it's longer than that. Some folks don't ever remember a time when they weren't kind of dyspeptic and, uh, and dysthymic. In the bipolar spectrum, there's something similar we would call cyclothymia. You get mood swings in either direction, depressed to uh, hypomania, but none of them ever go that far in any direction. And we, had, we all know friends who tend to be kind of down much of the time, Eeyore from uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh or the... Uh, uh, the kind of up and down uh, sporadically. So it's they're kind of like smaller versions, but longer lasting, almost personality 
flavor dimensions to uh, affective disorders. Those are the uh, the major variations. I got it. I got it. So for people listening to this who might be wondering, you know, might be on God, I haven't been feeling myself, or, you know, I've got sounds, sounds like me or something mm-hmm. like that. What would you suggest their first port of quality? Would it be a, a family doctor or family doctors, you know, tend to either misdiagnose or overprescribe or what errors are family doctors making when yeah. they might want to see yeah. like a, a clinician uh, sure. professional? Yeah. If you, I mean, number one, uh, even before you get to a family doctor, certainly the things you can download from the internet are self-help books, and many of them are, are quite good. So it doesn't hurt to, uh, to go one of those sources first. Family doctors are marvelous. The problem with family doctors in the States, it's not the same thing in, uh, in England and Western Europe. The problem with family doctors in the States is they're not trained in psychiatric uh, kinds of uh, issues. And most family doctors have about 80 things they have to worry about when you go to see them for your annual checkup. And if you mention you're depressed or anxious, the one thing they know how to do is to medicate. And we have yeah. some very good medications for depression. I mean, the real godsends, the uh, uh, the antidepressants, SSRIs are the most uh, second most widely prescribed medication in the world behind the statins. And they can do some real good. They're not addictive, which is a very nice thing. 30 years ago, we would have uh, relied on minor tranquilizers, which is- Yeah, valium, Exactly. They're about as effective as alcohol and, and, and every bit as addictive. So you're not going to get in that much trouble with them. The problem with that is that most folks who are clinically depressed enough to warrant treatment are going to get better regardless of what you do. And the thing I would say is for uh, you know, 100 patients who are any criterion for major depression- and probably uh, half to three quarters of them are going to respond to anything more than to nothing. However, if you put on medications, they're going to get better. They're going to get better because they think they're on medications, not because of the actual pharmacological substance. The antidepressants, SSRIs, uh, don't separate from placebo until you start getting up in the upper half, maybe upper uh, third of the severity continuum. And psychiatrists are a little better at teasing that apart. Psychiatrists are less likely to put you on medications than a family doctor is because family doctor doesn't know what else to do. In England, where they have uh, primary care clinics, you house the uh, general practitioners in the same settings with the uh, therapist. And uh, if they want to make referral to a good psychotherapist, they send you across the hall to the person they eat lunch with every day. In the States, they don't know where to send them somebody. So you're much, we, we rely more on medications in the States than uh, any other uh, Western democracy. We're about twice as likely to medicate a depression. And probably a lot of the folks who are getting better aren't getting better because of the active medications. You get the side effects. And there's some concern that the medications, as useful as they seem to be in the short run, may set you up for relapse recurrence when you try to come off them. So it may be kind of hard to get off. Right, 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 right. I mean, that is, that is very interesting. That lead, uh, question I certainly want to ask later on is about mm-hmm. the role of pharmaceutical companies and uh, and. Uh, mm-hmm. something similar to the opioids where they're yeah. obviously part of the solution. Opioids are obviously a solution to pain, but they're also part of the problem. But before uh, b- before we get into that, so may I ask you, what's a, what's the name of a, a self-help book? Because, I mean, you've said there's some very good ones. There are also some, some very shit ones. So, yeah, so right, what right, would, right. where would you go, you know, or would you say, like, why don't you have a look at this book? Which book? What would you yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there's some quite good ones out. The one I like best and the one I usually uh, encourage uh, clients that I work with to uh, pick up is by Greenberg and Podesta. It's called Mind Over Mood, and uh, it's a very nice uh, manual written for lay audiences about how they can go through the process and uh, do CBT for themselves. And I'd say I'll, I'll have clients work along in that at the same time that we're working together, but uh, I know a lot of people that have gotten good mileage from that just on their own. Okay. Older one is, I'm sorry, older one that's good is feeling, uh, is feeling Good by David Burns. It's gone through many uh, revisions. It dates back to the uh, late 70s, early 80s when CBT was both ta- first taking off. And I think Paul Gilbert has a nice one on compassion therapy. There are a number of nice things out there. Hmm, compassion therapy. That's an interesting one. That sounds like mm-hmm. it's got a little Buddhist uh, flavor to it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and there's a, a lot of uh, one of the uh, 
I'd say say newer, it's newer in, in, in uh, therapeutic scientific terms, probably for the last 20 years, is uh, mindfulness, the version of meditation. And uh, particularly in England, very popular to uh, almost as a preventative thing to have people learn how to meditate, to uh, uh, do a number of things that come out of uh, uh, Far Eastern uh, philosophical approaches that seem to have some real merit to them. Yeah, mindfulness-based stress reduction. I don't know, is there a mindfulness mm-hmm. as a, well, yeah. mindfulness as, as a prophylactic or mindfulness as a, as a wellness, like doing uh, yoga or going to the gym once yeah. in a while. It's something that... Yeah. It gives you is a measure of insurance against uh... exactly that, and it does come from uh, John Kabat-Zinn and what he was doing with pain control. And what we find, maybe, maybe, maybe it's going to work when somebody's acutely depressed. Although there've been very few studies of that, there is pretty good literature that it's a preventative thing. Uh, somebody uh, who has a history of depression, if they uh, start using the mindfulness approach, can reduce the risk for subsequent depression. What's a book that will point people towards uh, mindfulness and depression that you that you might recommend? Um, there are three main authors in that area, uh, Zindel Siegel, Mark Williams, and John Teasdale. And Google one of those three. I, I can't imagine they don't have a uh, self-help manual based on that. Is that Siegel the Harvard guy? Is that the, the other one? No, uh, this, is, this is Zindel in uh, Toronto, S-E-G-A-L. S-E-G-A-L. And Mark Williams is at Oxford and... Uh, John Teasdale was at Oxford, moved over to uh, Cambridge. Oh, right. They'll never forgive him for that. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I was on a symposium uh, earlier this week with had people from Oxford and Cambridge, and it was something of a, of a reconciliation, the first time I think in 600 years. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the halls of those two places. They're, uh, they're <laughs> quite the institutions. Uh, let me ask you this. Is underdi- this is a question that you know you might hate, but anyway, I'm going to ask. Is it underdiagnosed, would you say, or overdiagnosed in our, in our, in our American? Let's use America as a... Yes. Yes to both. Both. Okay. We miss people. We miss people that are depressed. I think a lot of folks who are depressed don't recognize that's what's going on for them. They think a lot of other things are going wrong. Or they're just uh, life's got bad, etc. I've got, a, sh- we, I've got uh, a shitty job, or I hate my marriage, or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah but that, and and we overdiagnose. So that basically, we, we make both kinds of diagnostic errors. Uh, say more about the overdiagnosis. What are we? What what mistake are we making there? Well, we're probably uh, probably too quick to uh, label something as a psychiatric illness. When I mean, there, there's a lot of reason to think, particularly unipolar depression, may be an evolved adaptation where uh, it evolved to serve a purpose and. Uh, one of the things uh, people do when they depress when they get depressed is they ruminate a lot, and uh, we know that uh, serotonin has a lot to do with rumination. Uh, we know that serotonin, uh, same serotonin systems, direct you to increase immune functions when you get an infection. It also directs you to uh, preserve vital organs like brain and uh, heart and liver if you start if you're starving. But the the very fact that uh, when you get clinically depressed, the serotonin system is driving you to having a lot of focused attention on whatever's going wrong in your life at the moment uh, suggests that it actually served a purpose, help people stay with the problem long enough to resolve it. Hmm. Now, there's some better, yeah. So uh, we may we may be, how would you say, pathologizing depression, as unpleasant as it is, uh, uh, just in the way that uh, pathologizing all pain as a, as a, as a disease is uh, probably problematic. That's fast. That, that, that is fascinating. You know, um, I sometimes say to people uh, that I would never have started a company or probably even started to write a book or any of the sort of bigger projects mm-hmm. that I've uh, done in life, if there wasn't a sort of a, a narcissistic, a hubristic, uh, a manic side to me that persuaded yeah. me that, you know, I would be able to do something against the, the, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. I wonder if all if entrepreneurs sort of put that, that kind of pathology to, you know, exceptionally good use is believing that they were, they were somehow, so there's some epipathological Grandiosity. Yeah, yeah. grandiosity. I would never have started a, if I. I think if I'd been thinking clearly at the time, I, I would have started a company <laughs> all those decades ago. <laughs> and it ended, I ended up being successful. You know, good fortune and you know, you know, some 
yeah, and everything yeah. like and, that. But if someone, people in the bipolar spectrum are overrepresented among CEOs, uh, entrepreneurs, etc., the uh, the willingness to take chances uh, uh, probably has a bit of a, a genetic basis to it, at least to some extent. And people in the unipolar spectrum make particularly good leaders. You look at Churchill, you look at Lincoln. Uh, they tend to be the folks that uh, lead in uh, democratic fashions and ways that uh, promote the public good. And uh, so it's. Uh, What's your, what's, probably, your, what's your theory about that? What's your theory about that? That you know how why how might that work? What's the mechanism by way of Churchill or Lincoln, who's a yeah? I think I think they're uh, more tuned to uh, others' uh, well-being. And uh, one thing that uh, folks tend to uh, who tend to get depressed tend to be a little more sensitive, a little more tuned into other people's uh, wishes and the like. And these these are not the autocrats, the tyrants. These are the people that uh, uh, other people pull into leadership roles and uh, and then do great things because they're not self-serving. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Obviously, in the United States, we'd never elect anyone with any sort of, you know, mood disorders <laughs> or, or psychopathology. So that never happened. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Couldn't happen. I mean, thank, God we, thank God we weren't this advanced back at the time of the Civil War. <laughs> so you say, oh, we diagnosed the pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, part of the problem, uh, part of the solution. Uh, obviously, the answer is both. But both. In, what, in which way? Yeah, yeah, obviously both. Right. I mean, in all fairness, pharmaceutical companies aren't business to do good. They're business to do well. And you wouldn't expect them to be any less uh, bottom line serving than any other uh, corporation. All that being said, sometimes it gets pushed way too far in, in the wrong directions. The, uh, you mentioned the Oxycontin. The, uh, if, I, if I read the article in the New Yorker back in uh, New York Magazine, I think back in around last October, around Halloween, about uh, Purdue Pharma and how they really led the uh, influx of uh, opioid addictions. I mean, we, uh, how those people are not in jail is beyond me. And they were the same, it's the same family, the uh, Sackler, the same Sackler family, three brothers, all physicians, one of them a psychiatrist that got involved in uh, in uh, pharmaceutical advertising back in the uh, 50s, 60s. And they're the ones that pushed the uh, Valium epidemic we had in the late 60s, 70s. So they they just, it's, it's like watching the uh, big tobacco uh, know what they were doing and, and do it anyway. Uh, I'd be so, I'd be uh, fascinated. Personally speaking, I'm going to do a show on opioids addiction yeah. at one stage or another. I'd be yeah. fascinating. What's the link there? What's the Niger? Yeah, there was an article in the I want to say New York Magazine, New York uh, New York Magazine, I believe. And it uh, if you Google uh, around that, it was on Halloween that I read it, and I was on my way up to Yale to give a talk, and uh, just happened that uh, one of the people, in fact, on the Yale had just uh, left her role as the Sackler Professor of uh, something another university because she was not happy with the uh, uh, what she'd been learning about the family. The uh, if that article is accurate, and I heard something on public radio that uh, seemed to play in, uh, it sure sounds like this was not simple pharmaceutical company doing the best to maximize profits in a way that was in the public interest. These are people that kind of knew what they were doing and, and really pushed it anyway. They were able to lobby the FDA. Good physicians know that uh, opioids are addictive, uh, but what they were saying is we have a, a, a extended release opioid which is not addictive in the beginning. It, if you've got uh, terminal cancer and you can't sleep through the night, then you want something that lets you uh, get through eight to 12 hours without waking up with pain. And so it has a good medical purpose. Uh, but when you start prescribing it for chronic pain, back pain, et cetera, you've got a whole uh, raft of new uh, opioid users that wouldn't have had that. And they were doing that aggressively, promoting it aggressively. And then when uh, physicians catch on and realize they've been doing wrong by their patients and try to stop, then you've got a market for uh, heroin and other kinds of drugs that are even more dangerous. Sure. Than, and of course, uh, we're, we're not super good at, at treating addiction. I mean, That's here right. we are, we are. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we may be- We're better at creating it than we are at treating it. That's very well put. Yes, very, very well put. Yeah. That Sackler family, is that phonetically yeah. spelled S-A-C-K-L-E-R? I believe that is. Yeah, I'll definitely have a look at that. Yeah. So, let's get into, you know, all right, so you've got it, right? You're satisfied or your physician or uh, you've seen a clinical psychologist, mm -hmm. perhaps, or something like that. 
I mean, what works and, and what doesn't in terms of treatment, and maybe and maybe and maybe slightly a historical view of that. Like, you know, how's that changed over time? Yeah, gotcha. A uh, couple things. Number one, for less severe depressions, and we're probably talking, uh, we're talking all major depression. That's the uh, group I've mostly studied. For less severe depressions, anything works better than nothing. Okay, good. And that it's only when you get up more severe depressions that you need the extra specific the active medication in the pill or the uh, the cognitive behavioral or the interpersonal or the uh, behavioral kinds of interventions that go beyond uh, just the non sort of placebo response. But depression is quite highly uh, responsive to placebo effects, and thank God that it is. And uh, what that means is, again, I think the system that they're, they're working towards in uh, Great Britain is uh, virtually ideal. They'll start folks off with less intensive treatments, not pharmacological, but less intensive psychological treatments, maybe uh, stuff over the internet or uh, almost, what was your term earlier, life coach. They'll do things along that line, and a lot of folks will respond to that very nicely. So there's no reason to go on for something heavy that's more heavy duty. If you've got a history of more severe depressions, then they might bump you right up to the second level or, or intensive uh, therapies or medications. But they you, you don't start right there, which again, in our country, unfortunately, we start with the uh, with the heavier uh, duty medications, the same thing to use for more severe depression, we almost do by default by our general practitioners. And uh, I think I mentioned, uh, we're about twice as likely to medicate a depression, regardless of severity in this country than we would anywhere else in the world, certainly they would in England. And back in the uh, uh, early 90s, when the SSRIs first came out, you were about somebody who was clinically depressed would be twice as likely to get a psychological intervention than medications. Now it's totally reversed. Yeah. And the reason is that the GPs, bless their heart, are writing a lot of prescriptions because that's what they know how to do. They're trying to help their clients and more power to them. Uh, but what that also means is GPs generally don't have sufficient training. If somebody isn't better in, in uh, maybe uh, four to six, six to eight weeks, what a good psychiatrist would start doing is augmenting or switching. And what GPs typically do is give enough of the medication to take the edge off so the person is kind of rolling along, not as bad as they were, but not back to where they uh, were before they got depressed, and they kind of stay in that state forever and ever. And uh, that's the real risk that you run into. It's very interesting. Something very interesting for my own thing. When I've, I don't know whether I've self-diagnosed or, or seen a physician, I can't mm-hmm. remember which, but yeah, I think I must have seen a physician because I think back in the day, back 25 years ago, when I first sort of was diagnosed mm-hmm. with disorder, I took a tricyclic antidepressant. Yeah. And those take three weeks, two weeks, three weeks yeah. to take effect. Yeah. I felt better the next day. Yeah. And, and, and it's a fascinating thing. And it was almost, it's a decision to do something about it. You're talking about a placebo effect. It's a decision to do okay. something about it that seemed to have a profound effect on my energy, okay. my sense of purpose, yeah. my my behaviors, you know, fatigue, all the things that I've been wrestling with. And so that's quite quite an interesting uh, it's a data point. Obviously, it's not a thing, but I just wonder if that's more ubiquitous. Is so once you decide to do something about it, that's the beginning of the end of the problem. Yeah. Uh, your experience was exactly on target. That's what happens for most folks. That's why I'd say, for God's sake, do something as opposed to doing nothing. And uh, something usually works better than its absence. If you do, uh, uh, as we do sometimes, drug and placebo controlled trials, what you'll find is you get a drop in scores as soon as people start taking the medication. Sometimes even when they when they sign up for a study. Yeah. Uh, but the drug and plus the active medication and the placebo don't start separating until about two, three weeks in. And that's true for any of the antidepressants. So you'll, you'll, you'll get a boost. You'll get better faster. And then you continue getting uh, better faster on the active medication than the placebo. Although, again, that's maybe the upper third of the severity or, or chronicity or comorbidity, comorbidity group. Uh, that's kind of interesting. There's a sort of little warning sign there because there are certainly, I think, people, and I know more more than one person who's 
been prescribed an antidepressant med- medication, don't feel better, unlike me, but you know, don't feel better after three days and throw them in the thing. It's yeah, exactly. not doing any good. But in fact, yeah. affect the serotonin receptors, if, if it's an SR, SSRI, right. takes weeks, right? right? It takes weeks for them to right. potentiate, or I can't remember, right. depotentiate, I can't remember the word from my... That's right. And the tricyclics also hit serotonin receptors or norepinephrine receptors. That's the slightly older, dirtier drugs. Uh, SSRIs are almost purely uh, serotonergic. Uh, MAOIs are the older, older medications still, and they hit not only serotonin, but norepinephrine and dopamine, the three major biogenic amines. And I mean, they all work. The uh, MAOIs, you have to be careful because there's certain dietary restrictions. You can't eat uh, aged cheeses and, uh, and drink red wine. So in the first early days, when they first came out, a lot of academics started dropping dead in England and they, they banned them for a while. It turns out if you know what to avoid, then uh, it works out okay. They may still be the most powerful tricyclics a little less powerful, but a little more dangerous because they're too easy to overdose on. A couple of weeks supply can kill you if you take an overdose. Uh, SSRIs, uh, you just you, you can't poison yourself with them, so they're relatively safe. That's why general practitioners were comfortable prescribing SSRIs. And new SSRIs, anything out there? That's uh, is there a next just generation SSRIs? We all read listening to Pro, Prozac yeah, a couple pro, decades ago. Uh, I mean, yeah, probably not at this point. And I mean, the pharmaceutical companies will keep coming up with something. There's a uh, it's like locusts; they'll show up with something new every 17 years because that's when the old medications go off patent. But it's driven more by the uh, economics of the field yeah. than anything. Yeah. The thing that is uh, new on the horizon, and we don't know quite yet what to do with it, is ketamine. Mm. And ketamine, uh, glutamatergic, uh, hits N- NMDA receptors. And most uh, antidepressants, as you mentioned, take uh, a couple of weeks to really kick in the, the pharmaceutical effect. Uh, you get the placebo effect very rapidly, but the pharmaceutical effect takes a couple of weeks to kick in. Uh, ketamine, you'll get it kicking within a couple of hours. You have people who are severely depressed. But it's a, recreation, it's a recreational, recreational drug. It's called vitamin K, right? Yes, right. But if you use it uh, psychiatrically, it's very effective with uh, people with severe depression. The problem is you can't use it very often, very, very rapidly. So we, we know you get this remarkably powerful, rapid effect that we can't get any other way. But if you use it too much, too often, you run the risk of, uh, of uh, some very bad side effects, maybe even some psychosis. So we're, we're just learning how to handle that. And uh, if there's going to be a breakthrough, I think it's going to be in the uh, in the glutamatergic systems uh, rather than the serotonin. Be, that does sound interesting. That does sound like, well, potentially yeah. be a new dawn, don't, don't know, over-advertise it. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I'm interested in two things then. Your specialism is CBT. Definitely interested in understanding more about that, how it differs yeah. with psychodynamic and other humanistic therapies, but also interested in some of the non-biological stuff, some of the behavioral stuff. So perhaps around nutrition. I mean, I've heard of things to do with inflammation. Yeah. I've heard things to do with the microbiome. We won't be able to do justice to them all, but you know, what do you hear from those frontiers? But let's first do your yeah. your thing that you're a world expert in in CBT. Let, let's hear a little bit about CBT. Uh, it was from the 60s. It's Aaron Beck. Like, how was it different then? How was it breakthrough? What's different than psychodynamic? I think most people, when they think about therapy, think about, you know, a decades on the analyst couch and a Woody Allen type of thing. Yes. That ain't CBT. So what's yeah. up with that? Okay. Well, uh, CBT is the ring thing you focus on are what people believe about the people themselves, the worlds and their future. And most of the time when somebody's depressed, and it may be the kind of thing that helps get them into the depression in the first place, they have uh, beliefs about themselves. I'm inadequate. I'm unlovable. I, I can't do this. I won't enjoy that if I go to that party, et cetera, which if they were to test would turn out not to be true, but they believe it at the moment. So it drives their affect and drives their behavior. And the uh, thing that Beck learned early on is that it's not enough to sit there and reason with the client. What you want to do is encourage them to get in situations where they find that their own experience is different than what they expected. 
So uh, although it's called cognitive therapy, it's really a cognitive behavioral intervention. And uh, what you might do, for example, if, uh, if I were seeing somebody for the first time and they were saying, look, I'm, uh, I've stopped playing tennis with friends, I've stopped going around to things, I think I'm inadequate at my job, or I think I'm unlovable, et cetera, I would say, gee, if you weren't depressed, what would you do uh, uh, this afternoon? I'd get them to lay that out. Then I'd get them just for the sake of therapy to test whether or not they could actually pull that off whether or not they might not enjoy that more than they thought. So you want to get them very as rapid as you can, engaging behaviors that would actually test their beliefs. And when they do that, more often than not, it turns out that they're more confident than they thought they were, they're more lovable than they thought they were, they're, uh, they enjoy the party more than they thought they did. But if they don't get to the party, they don't enjoy it at all. So you start running a series of uh, almost kind of empirical tests on things. And then over the next week or two or three, you start bringing them back around to looking more systematically at how accurate the beliefs are when they first pop up for them. So it's a, it's a cognitive behavioral thing. CBT was the first thing that got off, cognitive therapy was the first thing that got off uh, uh, the snide in the mid-70s. Uh, at that time, we knew we had medications that worked, but no psychotherapy held its own vis-a-vis -vis medications. Uh, cognitive therapy did, and over the, first, uh, the next 20, 30 years, you would say that across the whole range of at least non-psychotic depressions, Cognitive therapy done well is about as effective as medication, not more so, but about as effective as. Behavioral activation is CBT without the cognition. And it's just, you're getting people structured, scheduled, going about their business. The hallmark there is anything you would do if you weren't depressed, if you weren't depressed, do. And uh, don't wait to feel like do it, just go ahead and do it. It's very similar to what we do in CBT. And again, that works quite well. It hasn't been tested as often as CBT has. Uh, but the trials uh, look to be very That's similar. Interesting. And the key thing about so, so the old yeah. model of psych, if you go back to say the fifties or forties or something like that, the idea was think your way into a new way of acting in a sort of way. You change sort of the belief structure. You reason with people to yep. to, and then you reason with people. You change their belief system, and then you know the magic happens here. Their behaviors yep. change. We know that behaviors don't always align with beliefs. And so what you're saying is we actually right. focus in CBT on acting your way into a new way of thinking in a, in a certain respect. Yeah. Uh, and actually, what, what we would do, at least in, in CBT, is we encourage people to use the behaviors to test their beliefs. Your friend's going to have a party this week, and you're going to go, well, yeah, but I don't really feel like it. I don't think I could. I don't think I'd enjoy it. Well, let's see. Let's run an experiment. Let's do whatever we have to do to get you to the party, and then we'll see what your mood's like. And uh, again, depression tends to live in the recollection or the expectation. People expect they're not going to feel as good as they usually do when they get there, or they don't remember having enjoyed it once uh, once they get a, a, a day or two past it. So you try to protect them against that. It's it's That's where the cognitive piece comes in. But gee, a lot, a lot of folks fall prey to that. It, it's classic in depression. People get more pessimistic, more down on themselves, and ways that other people don't give them as hard a time as they give themselves. So you try to and, and what's the difference between CBT and brief therapy? Is one a, is one a subset of the other, or what's the what's the shtick there? CBT tends to be briefer. I can remember back when I was in training uh, with Beck, I went over and, and went through the residency program in uh, psychiatry and took part of the clinic so I could get exposed to some broader things. About halfway through, the uh, assistant director of the clinic called me and said, Steve, we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, your patients, you're, you're discharging your patients too fast. I said, but they're better. He said, no, they couldn't possibly be better. The dynamic model said everybody needs four to six years of treatment. And some folks are getting better in two, three months. Depression, for many folks, you can knock out pretty quickly. Uh, panic disorder, you can knock out pretty quickly. PTSD, you can knock out pretty quickly. And if you can do it, why not do it faster? So, uh, Cognitive behavior therapy, you know, cognitive therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, again, done well, seems to be quite efficacious, uh, behavioral activation as well. And they both happen during effects. We're more clear about that on CBT than on uh, behavioral activation, just because behavioral activation hasn't been tested that many times. But when it's been tested, uh, either of the two seem to cut risk for subsequent episodes in half relative to getting better on that. You know, it's funny with, funny with oh, me, the, the, the cynic in me thinks that, you know, that you got your, your Park Avenue, uh, Park Avenue psychotherapist trained in 
trained in analysis. Mm-hmm. I, I think it takes 14 years. I think it takes 14 years. I think something like that to yep. train as an analyst, some ridiculous amount of time. And their financial model is such that, you know, their mm-hmm. economic interests of paying for the Park Avenue offices and yep. keeping someone on the couch yep. for as long as possible. So this is, you know, and, and some, I suppose that's a, it's a cynical yep. thought. I'm sure there's some truth to it, but I wouldn't want to take it too far. I wouldn't want to take yeah, it, I mean, I wouldn't take it too far. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. All that being said, I think the uh, the real thing that we're learning is that it's moderation, moderation, moderation. Not everybody responds to exactly the same things. And the, for the last for the last 20, 30 years, we've been looking at what's the most effective treatment as if different people didn't respond to different things. And my colleague, Rob DeRubis at Penn, has done some marvelous work for the last five years or so uh, developing what he called treatment selection algorithms. And what you do is use something like machine learning to... Uh, to identify different clumps of patient characteristics that respond. And we did a trial back in, uh, published in 2005, he was the lead author on that, where uh, we got comparable results for medications. We used paroxetine, a good strong SSRI, versus cognitive therapy, both beat pill placebo. Then in the long run, uh, people were about half as likely to relapse if they got better on cognitive therapy than if they got better on medications, and no more likely to relapse than if they stayed on medications. However, when Rob went back and looked at that, about a quarter of the patients would have, could have, would have, should have done better on medications some of them got it, some of them didn't. About a quarter of the patients would have should have done better on cognitive therapy. Some got it, some didn't. And if we had known then to use the kind of characteristics that he can identify, we could have increased the overall response rates in the sample by as much as the drug placebo difference. So we can, even before we improve any of the treatments, we can make uh, our treatment, we can make our mental health systems delivery more efficacious. We can help more people get better just by getting the right treatment to the right individual. Now I say that there's a guy in England, two folks I'll mention, uh, uh, Jacques Barber here in the States, who was at Adelphi, a very good uh, research uh, uh, psychologist with a strong uh, analytic dynamic orientation, and Peter Fonagy, who's the uh, Anna O'Freud uh, professor of psychiatry that heads the Tavistock mm-hmm. in London. And uh, they both do some marvelous things, dynamic psychotherapy. My guess when all gets sorted out is that I wouldn't start most folks on either on dynamic approaches, but there's going to be a subset of folks, uh, because they generally take longer, but there's going to be a subset of folks for who that's going to be the most effective treatment. And as we begin to sort out who does best with what, it might well be that uh, they're going to be a quarter to a third of the folks that just, no matter what you're going to do, the medication is going to work best for them. A quarter to a third, they're going to do better with a cognitive or behavioral intervention. Interpersonal psychotherapy, by the way, which is dynamic psychotherapy without the childhood reconstruction or they worry about the uh, therapeutic transference. It just, you focus on relationships also seems to be quite effective, as effective as either CBT or, or uh, uh, behavioral activation or medications. And dynamic psychotherapy, which has yet to do as well in a controlled trial as uh, medications. Dynamic, when you say dynamic, we could use the word Freudian without making too big a mistake, right? Yes, 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 you could. And and of course, modern day Freudian have come a long way from the original Freudian, but they're based on the same kind of notion of a dynamic unconscious. But I got to think folks like uh, Jacques Barber and and, uh, Peter Fonagy are onto something that probably isn't going to be necessary for everybody, but for a subset of patients, maybe 15, 20% of the population, that's going to work better. And uh, I think we're the process of sorting that out. I remember a line, happy families are all alike, but uh, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And and so there's a particularity with depression. And what you're saying is that we're becoming much cleverer. Somebody used the word algorithm. Do you mean algorithm in the sense of computer or do you you mean a sort of rubric or or heuristic for... Well, I do mean it's essentially an algorithm, the uh, something like the Framingham thing they have for heart disease. Someone like Rob can put together a half dozen indices, some of which predict better response to CBT, others predict better response to medications, some, uh, et cetera. You can put them together, put all of them together at the same time and come out with a score as to whether or not you would do better in CBT or medications. And in our randomized trials, some got what they should have gotten, others got the thing that they shouldn't have gotten. And you can see as big a difference 
between those who got what they should have gotten and those that didn't, as you do between either CBT or medications for placebo. So we can we can we can uh, get a we can boost the overall level of response. And again, I'd be very surprised if once this all sorts out, there are going to be some people that just don't do better with Jacques Barber or Peter Fonagan than they do with me or Derubis or. Uh, Murder Weissman or anybody else. That's very, very interesting. You know, this all sounds very bright. Um, you know what? I, I do want to. I, I keep thinking of new, new sort of treat, uh, new sort of um, avenues for questions here. One of the ones that I said that I was there, there are two, and I think we probably ought to think about wrapping it up. But one of them is around you know, nutrition, uh, inflammation, uh, microbiome, right. some of that stuff that I'm reading about these days. Yeah. And then the other thing is to do, and I think this would be helpful, is what do I do about my friend? And so so let's let's maybe do those and then think about how we wrap up. Sure. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, again, I'm no expert on uh, diet, exercise, et cetera, other than I think they're good things. And one of the things I'll start doing with uh, clients very early on, just like having them run experiments to go uh, to parties, getting them being physically active to the extent that they can, uh, trying to uh, get some control over the diet. And the studies that I have seen, they're not as many, they're not as, I can't have quite the same level of confidence, but I think things like exercise show well when you look at the controlled trials. So I'd be very surprised if those aren't also very good things to do. Hey, the acupuncture uh, 30 years ago, we would have dismissed when you do the carefully controlled trials. It looks oh, like that's really, I mean, that, so my I think, reading of acupuncture research is it doesn't work for anything. <laughs> well, not much, some, some particular yeah, kind of back pain, but I, I, it does I, seem to work. Yeah. You're telling me that there's yeah. some. Not many trials, but I look, somebody like Rachel Mamber at, uh, at Stanford's got a lovely trial uh, uh, with a sham control yeah. where you, it's hard to dismiss. Yeah, you don't know whether they're real needles or so it's a properly a proper RCT. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we know that needles, that it depends on where you put it. If you put them in the right place, you get the effects. If you put them in the wrong place, they don't. And uh, people don't know whether they're being put in the right place or the wrong that's, place. Yeah, I, I know that's how they do it. But most of the right. stuff I understood for acupuncture was didn't do anything at all. That The, the sham treatment, the sort uh, of quote-unquote yeah. placebo, the needles okay, in the wrong yeah, place, yeah. Uh, the needles in the right place didn't beat the needles okay. in the wrong place. But you're saying she did. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Now that, that, that I wouldn't know, but the the, the, the Semic Mamber study did, and it would be impressive. That's right. And what do we know about microbiome? Because we're understanding now, I understand that the microbiome has a role in inflammation, but there's also, and I don't know if there's any research behind this at all that's worth worth considering. I know there's a lot of nonsense talked about now the microbiome with this state of play, but yeah, I'm saying yeah. that there might be some, is there anything useful we're learning or hearing yeah. there? Well, again, I'm no expert there, and most of what I know, what I hear from friends, somebody like Paul Andrews, the evolutionary biologist, something master, uh, would talk about the very real similarities between uh, infection and depression, uh, clinical depression. And uh, it's probably the case that what evolved as our brains evolved that we now call depression grew out of the response to having an infection. What you do is you shut down a lot of activity. Uh, you don't pursue a down pursuit. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. It, it allows you to put energy into uh, immune functions and the same uh, underlying their transmitter systems control what you do when you get clinically depressed. I, most of the time, that's being driven by some kind of interpersonal problem. And in our evolutionary history, we lived in very small bands, 25, 30 uh, vaguely related family, related family members. And especially if you're a female, if you got ostracized by the group, you and your offspring are not going to survive. So one of the things you've got to figure out how to do is how to solve these social problems. And uh, you can make a pretty good case that being fixed on the social issue until you work out some kind of resolution so you get to stay with the band is going to be adaptive. It's going to be selected. It's uh, The re- reason I get into that at all is that uh, there's a real connection between the gut and the uh, and the brain. Most of the uh, serotonin receptors mm. are in the gut. So uh, I got to, without knowing that literature for sure, I got to think that's a very impressive, a very important area to do research in. Fascinating. Very, very, very interesting. So we've talked a little bit about, is there any, there are nutrients. So there are people believe that, uh, you know, carbohydrates and, and sugars and omega-3s and anything mm-hmm. like that. Is there anything you read there that seems to be of uh, clinical note or is it still early days? Chocolate. Chocolate. Okay. 
Chocolate is a very effective supplement. <laughs> I'm going to deal with that with my obesity. <laughs> my depression is coming yeah. with my obesity. All right. All right. Very interesting. Right. Well, walk, walk to the store. Walk past the first door. <laughs> so train myself in impulse control at the same time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very good. Yeah. One of the things, I don't know if you're going to get there. One of the things you're asking is, uh, do you put the idea in the head of somebody uh, if you ask them about suicide? And uh, the response you know. to that is no. And uh, uh, one of the biggest shibboleth uh, in any kind of training is, for God's sake, if, you, if, if all you know is somebody's sad, if they're not doing much, et cetera, then ask them if they're thinking about suicide. Because they're not, make them think about something they're not thinking about. But if anything, it helps, it facilitates the process. And uh, it's almost a sense of relief if they get a chance to talk about it. Uh, one of the first things we teach young clinicians and trainers, for God's sake, don't be afraid. Uh, yes, 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 yeah. There's an interesting question. Can people learn not to get depressed? Something that speaks to some of the things we were yep. talking about, the behavioral stuff that we've been talking about. Well, yep. what's the 411 on that? Oh, absolutely. And again, we don't know that they don't in other kinds of psychotherapies. Maybe dynamic does. The most recent Peter Fonagy study I did, I saw uh, indicated an enduring effect where uh, if you compared uh, long-term dynamic psychotherapy, I think there were uh, 40 some months or so, 42 months against treatment as usual, which usually involved medications. The dynamic psychotherapy didn't separate from the uh, treatment as usual, but once treatment was over, the folks who got dynamic therapy held their gains and the folks who had treatment as usual didn't. So it looks like an enduring effect, not a huge response. And for uh, for cognitive therapy and quite possibly for behavioral activation, there, there are eight good trials that compare prior cognitive therapy to prior uh, medications and where they get comparable acute results. But once you take the treatments away, uh, folks who had prior cognitive therapy are only less than half as likely to relapse in the future. And everything we see suggests that uh, you can get enduring effects from cognitive therapy, probably behavioral activation, maybe dynamic psychotherapy as well. And as useful as the medications could be, uh, there's no reason to think medications do anything positive after you stop taking mm. them. And in the States nowadays, no good psychopharmacotherapist is ever going to talk with a patient who's stabilized on antidepressants about coming off. They, they see that as a as a, anybody with a history of recurrent or chronic depression. They can't think of anything else to do. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. So there's sometimes a narrative that I've, I've run across, which is, you know, I kind of done therapy. I did that. I was in my, you know, my 30s and yeah. everything like that. You know, I'm not okay. I'm not feeling my best right now. I could... You know, something, but I kind of done all that. I've, I know where the bodies are buried and everything like that. What would you say to someone who said that? Yeah, if you're if you're depressed at the moment, then you obviously don't. <laughs> that's, you really, that's, that's a fairly direct that's response. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's not beat around the bush. It doesn't mean you have to do anything about it, but uh, let's be clear. Any of the major interventions for depression, medications, cognitive therapy, behavioral activation, IPT, et cetera, maybe, maybe not the dynamic. It may take longer there. But those other words are relatively short-term treatments. If you're not uh, back to where you were before you got depressed in the first place in uh, eight to 10 uh, weeks, something's got not it. working right. I would change their got it, got it, got it. All right. Well, last question. I, I, I don't know if uh, I mm-hmm. mentioned this to listeners, but you know, I spent time with someone who is uh, uh, an acquaintance, let's say, but sharing a house with him. Mm-hmm. One of the most, you know, sort mm-hmm. of non. You know, I spent three weeks and didn't get out of bed too much and didn't feel like doing stuff and all yeah. that. And yeah. uh, I certainly run into that. So, yeah. how? What are the things that are are really good that you can do for the friend, spouse, child, buddy? you know, whomever it might be in your life that you suspect. And what are the things that you ought yeah. not to do? Yeah, a, cu- a couple of things. Friend, family member, et cetera, I would, number one, say, look, let's go do stuff. And let's go do stuff that you used to like. I don't, you don't have to think you're going to like it now. If you're depressed, don't wait to feel like doing something. Start doing stuff, and then you'll start feeling like it. It works the other way around. That gets the neurotransmitters moving. The second thing is I wouldn't necessarily uh, treat a friend, a family member, other than say, let's go do stuff together. And by the way, you talking to anybody? You seeing anybody? 
And for God's sake, please do one of those things because it's an eminently treatable. Yeah, but it's also the sort of thing that people tend to tiptoe around. I mean, I don't know whether it's, you know, it's it's still it's still the boogeyman. You think with one in six people in the United States and 20% of women and 10% of men, yeah. you know, we ought not to be tiptoeing around this. It ought to be discussed. But, you know, you don't find people freely saying, you know, I have been depressed or I am depressed or something like that. There's still some sort of stigma which strikes me as nonsense given the prevalence or something like that. But what could we as a, oh, yeah. as a well, I'm not talking about friendships or something like that, get out and do something, certainly something. Let's go take a walk. Let's go, let's go take a walk. The uh, You like hot fudge sundaes? Let's go get a hot fudge sundae. Let's do something to get you moving. And let's get your mind off whatever your mind's focused on at the moment. Let's, let's get you out. Let's get something going. And by the way, if you've been, if you've been uh, mostly staying in the house, staying in bed for the last couple of weeks, if that's not what you're typically like, for God's sake. You know what's interesting it. about that is if you're in a – there's the cultural aspect. There's, of course, the research on, on obesity and weight loss or something like that, which you want to lose weight, hang out with skinny people mm-hmm. because they're the people who are out mm-hmm. doing something. And if you're – there's a sort of cultural or a family or a aspect to depression as well. If you're in the sort of household where people are, are getting up and doing something, but if you're with uh, – say your roommate's depressed mm-hmm. or something like that, if he'll mm-hmm. be dragging you down while you're dragging him down is, in, in, in a certain sense of the way. There's a sort of social That's dimension to it. Yeah, there's a real risk. Yes, yeah, yeah, some contagion. That's uh, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, that's uh, you know absolutely fascinating stuff. You know, open your crystal ball. Like, what do you see in the next decade? Is this something that we're beginning to get a hold of? Or you feel you know positive when you look at the world? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, we, we we absolutely are. The uh, and I think the uh, there are a couple of major breakthroughs. One of the biggest breakthroughs is this whole notion of treatment selection. The thing that Rubus has been working on and others as well. And I mean, the uh, uh, we can do things now generating these algorithms with machine learning. We're getting close to be able to answer the question, what treatment works best for what individual under what circumstances and situations? And we're, we're light years ahead of where we were even a decade ago. And that's before we make even better treatments. Ketamine may be the hottest thing coming down the pike in terms of medication. We've been 30 years since the last new medication. Great if, it, if we can figure out how to use that. But I think the treatment selection is going to be the, the key thing. And I think the... Uh, in terms of social engineering, what uh, David Clark and Richard Laird are doing in England with the IAP program, where we're making effective interventions widely accessible in a step care fashion so that people don't get locked into months and years of something more than they need, but we're picking off the low-hanging fruit early in ways that people feel a lot You know, it's funny, you said moderation, 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 but I'm also hearing from what you're saying is experiment, experiment, experiment. Yeah, always experiment. Yeah. Oh, by the way, moderation in the technical term means we're going to identify who responds best to which intervention right. in that experiment. Got it. Got it. You know, I had very high, very, very high expectations and, for this, and they've been um, more than exceeded. No, no, no. No, no, no I, you know, <laughs> uh, it's just been fascinating. And I, I'm left with uh, a sense that, um, you know, for people listening who may or may not be wondering for themselves that, you know, this is a very, a very positive view, get out and do something, and that there are things that yep. 100% of demonstrated work in randomly controlled trials, and a lot of very practical insights, too, around mindfulness, around activity, actuate to do think of thinking. Uh, so, I mean, I think there's been so much value, both for people who are interested in a sort of academic way, but but from a practical yeah. standpoint. Any, any closing thoughts, remarks? Two, and uh, I'll be very brief, or at least very rapid in how I say them. Number one, uh, it's not that people who are depressed can't do, it's that they don't think they can or they don't think they'll enjoy it. And anybody in the midst of a depression would do anything they could do when they weren't depressed. And the, part of the trick of that is helping them get in situations where they find that out. It clears the depression very rapidly. The second thing, a colleague, Vikram Patel, who uh, 
has recently moved to Harvard, is doing some marvelous things in global mental health. He did a trial uh, uh, just came out in 2017 in Lancet, where they took non-professional uh, lay counselors. These are largely high school graduates in uh, Goa, India, taught them how to do behavioral activation, culturally adaptive version of behavioral activation, and got some nice results in uh, rural uh, GP uh, general practice clinics uh, for folks that have very little access to anything. And uh, the majority of the folks in the world who are depressed don't live in Western societies. And to be able to do things like that uh, is absolutely remarkable. And my goodness sake, if we can do it in rural India, we can do it in East Tennessee. That's really fascinating. That's very good. Look, I've, you know, loved every minute. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and and everything with your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. Take care now. Bye-bye. Hi, and this is the value-add segment of the show when I get to talk about what I think are some of the great things that are happening, perhaps outside the world of books and letters so much. I'm playing the introduction to a track on depression. It has a telephone number as the title. 1-800-273-8255. It's by a guy called Logic, and he is setting the pace, I think, is one of the most talented musicians perhaps of this decade. He's joined also by a guy called Juice World, who has a similar style. They talk a lot about pain and depression and families and loss and some of the difficulties in growing up and in, in adulthood. And I just think one of the most amazing people to listen to at the moment. I'm going to turn him down a little bit now as we um, talk about some more things. I'm watching two television shows where I just finished Ozark which is a Netflix release, it's an amazing, amazing show. Starting Jason Bateman, who plays a nerdy accountant uh, family man who gets embroiled in a money laundering scheme for the drug cartels. And so it's a little bit like Breaking Bad. The villains are super, super nasty. And he's super, super nerdy and, and basically survives these encounters on intellect and wit alone. So 100% worth a watch. And I, if I haven't mentioned Goliath with Billy Bob Thornton, again, another brilliant Amazon show. I don't know how the main producing companies, HBO, are going to stay in business with the quality coming out of some of these disruptors like Amazon and Prime and um, Netflix. But uh, I'll leave that. My stock market pick would certainly not go along any of the old traditional content producers because uh, certainly about two-thirds of what I watch is on Netflix or Amazon Prime right now. So there we have that. And we're going to do a series on the, the microbiome, the gut, and it's linked to neuroscience, it's linked to immunology, it's linked to psychiatric disorders such as depression, inflammation, which is a precursor of heart disease, and obesity. And, you know, increasingly we're finding the microbiome is a critical area of study. It used to be said that we were 10 times more microbes. That number's been reduced to 1.3 times more microbe cells in the body than human cells, which is kind of an extraordinary thing. And you could have seen them as just waste or just an artifact or just something that's there as an annoyance. And we wouldn't even notice our microbiome unless it went on tilt and uh, made us very ill. But now we're finding increasingly that there's things that one can do to improve gut health and with attendant benefits to mood, inflammation, and obesity. So I'm going to be interviewing two or three experts on that. Like all of these new areas, there's a rush to commercialize the microbiome research prematurely. And I don't think, I think it's tailoring your microbiome is perhaps a good decade or a couple of decades away. That's my suspicion. I'll ask the experts on the show. But certainly invite you to listen to that show, which will be coming up in the middle of September. And so for now, yeah, I want to leave you a little bit of logic on the way out. Thank you very much for listening to um, 
everything. And thanks for your support for the podcast on Patreon. Thank you for leaving reviews if you've done so. And, and please, at the very least, tell your friends if you've enjoyed the material. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books. Lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.